This podcast is shareable. I'm going to go ahead on a limb and say this either is or will become your favorite podcast. This is shareable. The show that's so good, you got to tell someone about it. Every episode, we explore the impact of people and technology on our lives and careers, and we send you away with something shareable. Now, without further ado, let's get to it. And welcome back to Shareable. Today, my guest is Melanie Diesel, the founder of StoryFuel, which is a training advisory firm that teaches marketers and publishers around the world how to tell better brand stories. Melanie is an award-winning branded content creator, and she sits on the board of the Native Advertising Institute and was the first editor of branded content at the New York Times. In addition to her work with the Times, Melanie was one of the founders of the Huffington Post's brand storytelling team and is the former director of creative strategy for Time, Inc., where she worked on brand content programs across all 35 U.S. publications. You will love this episode. It's awesome. It's smart. You'll learn a lot about native advertising, and you'll probably want to share it because this episode, shareable. Today on Shareable, I Googled someone named Melanie Diesel, and what I found blew me away. I mean, I thought my Google results were good. First page, I, like I'm, I'm pretty excited about my Google results, but Melanie, I Googled you and looked at all of your results, and I'm like, damn, you are something. So hi, and welcome to the show. Uh, if nothing else, at least I'm SEO optimized, right? 100%. And then I looked at your <laughs> LinkedIn profile and good God, I mean, you are a, a force to be reckoned with. So for our listeners who don't know who you are, I'm going to have you introduce yourself in a second. Aside from being the founder of StoryFuel, I go back and I see that you have, uh, you're a, a content director and speaker coach at the Speaker Lab. You are a columnist at Inc. You were an instructor at Syracuse. You were director of creative strategy at Time, Inc. You were editor of digital branded content and social media strategy at the New York Times. The Huffington Post social media strategy and native ad products. I mean, it goes on and on. I mean, like, again, I felt like I had a really awesome LinkedIn profile, which I do. But this is really, this is great. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a wild ride. You're an impressive person. That is why Thank I do you. this show, honestly, is I, I do this show so that I can talk with impressive people. Well, you know, it's a it's a lot of fun. You know, we're we're all sort of on this crazy ride. And I don't think that I ever could have planned for the trajectory that my life took. Um, it's been a lot of unexpected opportunities and saying yes to things that I was curious about and um, kind of led me uh, on the right path. Um, but I think as you, you sort of hinted at there, I exist in this sort of weird in-between world between marketing and journalism. So my background is as a journalist. That's what I studied, both investigative reporting and arts and cultural criticism. So I'm absolutely like a writer, storyteller, journalist at heart. Um, But I had trouble finding a way to put those skills to use in a way that was going to also pay my bills. You know, it was sort of a a struggling time for the economy. I was having a rough time finding a full-time reporting position. And uh, a very smart recruiter kind of saw that there was a lot of overlap between my background and experience as a journalist and new opportunities that were opening up in this somewhat, at that point, undefined world of native advertising, where our mission is really to tell stories on behalf of brands and kind of help them adopt 
adopt the best practices of journalism to connect with their audience through content. So, you know, that is what brought me to, to Huffington Post, where I helped build out HuffPost Partner Studio and, and set up really a lot of really fun content projects there. Uh, I was really lucky to be brought over to the New York Times as their first editor of brand content, where we built T Brand Studio, the the team that's now over a hundred people uh, that does all the brand content work there. You know, content for brands that lives in the New York Times environment. I spent some time at Time Inc. where I kind of helped set up a similar team that worked across all 35 of our U.S. magazines. Uh, And then I realized that my real skill was actually in helping set up these kinds of teams and helping set up these kinds of best practices inside of organizations. So I set up shop at what is now Story Fuel uh, to kind of be able to give myself the freedom to, to travel, to speak, to run trainings and workshops, and to help all kinds of different brands kind of adopt the mindset of a journalist with the way that they tell brand stories. That's incredible, and I need to take. I need to confront upfront that um, on the one hand, I really want to dig super deep into what you do and how you do it, and on the yeah. other side, I kind of want to poke at the whole native advertising thing because I am super fifty fifty on the whole idea of it. Yeah, but but I think one of the things that you've done really nicely, according to my research, <laughs> is the way that you define native advertising and and the perspective and kind of angle that you take from it, where you're basically bringing the skills of journalists to marketers to tell better stories. Whereas I think a lot of what I see in native advertising is essentially marketers bringing their skills to journalists. And I think (laughs) that's the wrong direction for it to go. I think I agree. You know, I think one of the things that I certainly grappled with when I started is, you know, it's very easy to see how something like native advertising, where you're giving a, a brand, a marketer, the kind of power and tools that that journalists use, it's very easy to see how that power can be used for evil, right? It's very easy to see how we end up with with fake news or or almost like propaganda, you know, content that's from brands that's either misleading or or honestly just plain disinterest, like uninteresting, right? Like just bad content. It's very easy to see that possibility. And it would be silly to pretend that that kind of content doesn't exist in the world. It absolutely does. Um, And that's unfortunate. And I, and I, my mission is to sort of stop that and, and make, less of that kind of content appear in the world. Um, but I really do feel, and, I, and I've been able to, to kind of prove this out with different brands and at different publishers, that if you can really go back to basics, right? When we think of the word native advertising, you know, maybe you've heard of it as sort of a buzzword in the media space, but we know what the word native means, right? Like plants are native to a region, people are native to a place. You know, to be native is to be organic, to belong, to really be in the place where you most thrive. And so if we think of content in that way, how do I create content that is a natural fit here? How do I create content that would thrive in this environment? How do we as a brand create content that's going to add value and feel to others like it belongs here? If you really take that approach and you're thinking more about this is where I'm showing up, this is what people's expectations are here, this is what works best in this environment and what people expect here, then it's a lot harder to create content that stinks, you know, because you're, you're really being context conscious. You're, you're trying to show up in the way that fits the environment. And if you do that, you know, that, that's how you end up with stuff that works, that stuff that meets people's expectations, that, that's going to add value to the audience. So that's always been my focus. You know, when I started at the New York Times, our questions were, well, what does a reader expect from the New York Times? And, and maybe this is, you know, just a, a silly question, but, but think about it truly. When you think of the New York Times, you know, sort of your maybe political bias aside, what level of content, what type of content do you expect from a publication like that? 
I mean, I would tend to think like very, very well researched, right? Um, high, high integrity, maybe mm-hmm. a, a minimal bias. Even if there's a bias, I would tend to assume that it's they try to remain uh, kind of in that neutral journalistic integrity type of space. Right. But that so, ultimately, the 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 reporter probably had a budget to go and seek out this story rather than having to rush through with a bunch of opinions and fluff and non substantiated claims. Excellent. So pulling out some of the key things there, I heard you say that you would think it was thoroughly researched. Um, I took some of the cues of what you said to mean that it would be credible, right? It's something you can trust because of the reporter, because of the the lack of bias, uh, and, and that it's going to be presented in a way, presumably, that you can understand and you could pull it apart, that they spent a lot of time digging into something so they could present it to you in a more understandable way. So you don't have to, so to speak, right? Absolutely. Unlike The Economist, where it would be like, this, there's this only over my head. <laughs> Understand it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so what we wanted to try to do is say, okay, if we are going to invite brands into this environment, right, if we're going to give brands the ability to say something in a quote, New York Times environment, then they have to meet those same standards. The content we create in partnership with them must do some of the same things you just talked about. It must be thoroughly researched and backed up. You know, it must be factual. We're not going to print things that are untrue. Um, It must have multiple sources, right? We want to make sure we're bringing in credible sources with the content we create. We also applied to ourselves a standard of, of how we would display this content. So we wanted it to be visually interesting, right? We didn't want it to sort of look like an ad, so to speak. We don't want it to be, we don't want people to feel like, oh, this is just an ad. We want them to feel like this visually meets my standards for what good content looks like. It's well designed or it has good colors. You know, it has, uh, you know, quality photography or a great infographic, right? That it's visually bringing something to the table as well. Um, So, you know, we tried our best to live up to those same standards when we were creating content there. And that meant that there were certain things we couldn't do. You know, there were certain, uh, you know, we weren't going to publish just a blog written by your by your CEO or your CMO because that's not in fitting with what our readers expect. Um, you know, that's more of an opinion piece, which you might find on HuffPost because they have a ton of bloggers. So it was just a matter of kind of identifying what belongs in this environment and what doesn't. And then how do we communicate that to our brand partners and make sure that they live up to the same standards we've set for ourselves? So I feel a lot of idealism in the way that you're talking about this. And I appreciate that as, as somebody who was very idealistic going into social media, but working in social media, I found myself looking more and more and seeing all of the warts and, and horrible disfiguring uh, things that have come out of what I thought was going to be a technology to unite us, break down barriers and have us connect you know, beautifully across time and geography and show vulnerability. Instead, it's an absolute mess. So when I think about native advertising, everything you're saying makes perfect sense to me. And I appreciate the desire to fit in and the integrity of going about it in a way that your advertising is native to the platform, it fits it, et cetera. But I want to know where you fit in on some of the kind of uglier side of it, which is, you know, when that, when that tag that says this is sponsored or an advertising gets smaller and smaller and smaller, I think that's where a lot of people kind of start to begin to feel icky about it because they're blurring that line between is this content or is this advertising? So that I'd say that's the first point. I just like to get your take on it. And then the second part of it um, is going to be that isn't there inherently, if it's going to be an ad, isn't there inherently something about that that makes it tricky to really accept it as content on its own? Because it it ultimately has, when you're, when you're doing a well-researched piece, but if it's sponsored by Clorox or by you know, uh, Folgers coffee or whatever it is, doesn't that sort of muddy the message a little bit when you know that there's a vested interest in there or, or should you as a branded content sponsor 
be more selfless in it and putting something out that's of value, but not necessarily tied to you. What's your take on all that? So, so the first question was sort of, let's acknowledge the evil, right? Like, let's acknowledge the potential for this to go bad and that we're taking sort of an idealistic approach. Um, I think that's totally fair. And like I said, you know, my approach has always been um, to try my best to, to educate others. That's really why my company and my mission, you know, are the way they are, that I'm trying to speak to as many people as possible and help them see that this is possible, that they don't have to create that bad stuff. And not only that, but that bad stuff's not actually working and serving their purpose. Um, when it comes to, you know, the questions around deception, um, my thought has always been, I see myself in sort of an ombudsman type role that, Yes. In an ideal world, would I be working in a newsroom? Sure. That's the work that, that I fell in love with. But I feel like it's my responsibility to, to educate and to share the information that I have, the experience that I have with others in hopes that we'll see less of that crappy content, less of that deceptive content or that just straight up misleading content. Um, I know that I can't fix it all, of course, right? Like anyone who's trying to police the internet, you know, good luck to you. Uh, I hope you have a good therapist because it's going to be a long journey. Uh, so, you know, I, I acknowledge uh, <laughs> that sort of futile effort. Um, but I also think that there is a tendency to, um, perhaps from the outside, you know, if you're not working in this industry, to to project the most evil and most deceptive intent onto this industry, which I understand, right? It's again, we've, we've all seen a bad example or some advertisement we haven't liked and, and that leaves a bad taste in our mouth. I absolutely understand that. I've been on the receiving end of that. However, um, in almost every instance I've ever encountered, I don't know of a brand who doesn't want people to know that they sponsored a piece of content. What is the point in investing your time, effort, money, et cetera, into creating a video, a blog post, or whatever else if nobody knows when they're reading it that you created it, right? The whole point of an advertisement is to have some sort of association with your brand. So the idea that brands are running around trying to shrink their logos is, is so f- opposite of the truth uh, that it, it's like comical to me. You know, my, my primary work is telling brands that they, they can't put so much of their brand into this content because it's bordering on obscene, you know? So I've, I've never met a brand who was like, please make sure no one can tell that we sponsored this. Please make sure that, you know, it's hard to tell who, who put their money behind this. Make sure we get no brand lift and no, no rise in purchase from this content we've created. Well, let me clarify one thing real quick. I I just wanted to make the the clarification that I, I don't think brands are necessarily trying to uh, remove themselves and their sponsorship from it. I think more along the lines of of confusing readers or viewers at the outset that this is not actually an advertisement, that this is content. Because I think when when you get to the end of a really well-researched, well-written article, and then you're like, oh, this was brought to you by Nissan. You're like, oh, well, now I understand why they have this particular agenda in here. Doesn't it color the content of that whole piece, whatever it might be. I guess that's kind of more the point is not necessarily that this is sponsored by so-and-so, but that more and more, I mean, you see it on Facebook, like they're trying to make it so that sponsored content or, you know, um, suggested posts and things like that, they're trying to as softly as possible suggest this might not actually be something people paid for. But I think that disclosure is super important in being able to uh, create the credibility. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. So again, most most of the data shows that 
when a consumer knows that a piece of content is sponsored, uh, they're less likely to be upset, less likely to feel deceived, that when that disclosure comes at the bottom of a piece instead of at the outset, that it does create those exact kind of negative feelings you're talking about. So best practices industry-wide is to include clear and prominent disclosure at the top of the article. So that's why you see a lot of time a colored bar across the top that the person who's writing the article, the byline as we'd call it in journalism, is actually given to the brand. So it'll say by Clorox in the example that you mentioned. Um, and oftentimes there's sort of an italicized line of text either across the top of the page or at the very first sentence to make sure that that's clear. Because again, that a brand knows that making sure that people know it's sponsored is your best chance of having a positive reaction. If people don't find out till the end, they are going to feel disappointed or deceived or something else. So it's in their best interest to make sure that disclosure is clear at the top. And the same is true for any publisher that's hosting this content. We don't want our readers to feel, you know, if we're hosting it, to feel like we've tricked them into reading a sponsored piece of content. So we're also pushing, you know, on the publisher side for clear disclosure up front as often as possible. So it is really in everyone's best interest, you know, to your point that this disclosure is clear, it's prominent, it's at the outset, because, you know, what's the point in tricking someone into reading something? If they're going to end up feeling disappointed or deceived or have some sort of negative brand feeling about you, if you've got to trick them into to engaging with you, then it's not the right way to start that relationship to begin with. So we're not looking for, for that. You know, again, I, I don't find brands who are looking to kind of trick people into it. We want to find the right people who are willing to, to engage with us, you know, when they're invited to, uh, not sort of tricked into it. Now, again, I can't speak for every publisher out there. I'm sure there are some that have found some little hack that if they hide it, they can trick people into reading it. And if people never know, they can charge their brands the same amount and nobody wins, right? They can sort of slip under the radar. I, I'm sure there's someone who's found a way to exploit that kind of thing. But every publisher I've worked with, every brand that I've worked with has asked asked very pointed questions about how are we going to make sure that this is clear? How are we going to be labeling this? How can we make it more clear? And are we running any sort of focus group or testing to make sure that it's clear, to make sure that people understand? So, you know, I, I mean, I, from what I've seen, people are generally trying to make sure that that's known on the publisher side, you know, to maintain our relationship with our brands and on the, or with our audience. And then on the brand side to make sure that we're getting any sort of return and that we're engaging with the, the right audience. Um, but, you know, I think your, your second question really about sort of, does it make it tough to accept on its own? You know, are we, is it sort of, a, can it even be objective, right? Is that, that was sort of your, your follow-up question there? Yeah, it was kind of like, to, yeah, basically, can it be objective or is there always going to be that Im implicit bias in it? I think there's almost always going to be an objective, right? The, the fact that we're putting budget behind something means that the brand has an expressed intent you know, in, in creating it. Um, and I think that's always the case. What I don't believe is that that makes it inherently bad. Um, so I think about, for example, if, if you have an Apple product, uh, my guess is at some point you've either read the Mac forum or you've called, you know, you've contacted Apple support. Um, you've read a manual of some kind. Uh, you know, you've, you've, seen content from Apple to help you best use your device. Same thing with your car, right? You know, if you if you drive a car, you've probably flipped open the manual to figure out how to shut that one dash light off. That is content from a brand. You know, so is a recipe on the back of a box of, of cake mix. You know, we do trust brands as long as they stay within their area of authority. We actually find that you know, most consumers, you know, I, th I think the stat is like 93% of consumers say they trust content from a brand when it's within their area of authority. So as long as the brand is staying in its lane, so to speak, and talking about the things that it should be talking about, we can actually derive value from them. You know, if, if I'm 
doing a, a DIY home project in my house and Home Depot wants to show me how to properly use a tool or how to properly, you know, find a stud in a wall, that's absolutely something I want to hear from Home Depot on, right? They're the people providing me with these tools and everything I need for this project. I trust them to show me how to use it properly. So that's really the sweet spot, I think, is helping brands figure out what is your lane? What is your area of authority when it comes to content? Because when you step outside of that, that's when you start to confuse people. That's when it starts to feel contrived and forced and feel like it's unnatural. And why is this brand telling me about this thing? Um, I think, you know, most the places where brands can add the most value is, you know, education in particular, right? Where they're saying, this is something that we happen to know a lot about, you know, this is what we do every day, or this is the product that we create. This is how we do it that's something that people are curious about. You know, I do want to know where, where the beans for my coffee come from. So I appreciate that video interview with the farmer or the tour of the farm where those beans come from. You know, those kinds of things would, are interesting to me as a consumer. Um, you know, if, if it goes a step further uh, and they're talking about something totally unrelated to their products, their services, or the relationship that we have with them as consumers, then it starts to feel like there's some sort of, you know, seedy objective that, that isn't going to sit right with us. Yeah. And I think as long as kind of to one, thank you for all of this, because I, it, I think it helps to clarify for a lot of us that, you know, I'm partially, partially in this industry of being near and around native advertising by being in social and influencer marketing and content mm -hmm. marketing. Um, but I think for a lot of listeners who may not be a part of this, they hear native advertising and they immediately jump to the worst. So it's really nice to hear that there are efforts being made to provide disclosures and to, you know, create high quality content that stays within the lane. And I think kind of uh, to sum it up that this is advertising. So people do probably expect it to have some sort of an objective. And as long as it stays in the lane, that'll make sense. And as long as it's disclosed, then it's not shady. So yeah. I think all of that makes sense. So I really appreciate you doing that. I actually want to uh, take a step back and, and ask you about something because as you talk about all this stuff, you're you're coming through with like this amazing passion and energy about it. It's <laughs> you're you know it's obvious that the building blocks of your career all led up to being here. I actually want to know more about you and where all of this kind of came from. So as we're talking about all this, the question that kind of kept popping in my head is, what are you actually most passionate about here? Like, is it? Are you, I don't think that you're most passionate about native advertising, right? Like, well, I don't that's think true. that's your. <laughs> So there's something under that that excites you and and really is driving you to do all of this stuff. There's a why there. And I'd like to know what that is. It's a really good question. I don't know that I've ever tried to break it down to its most base parts. Um, what I can tell you is that what I loved about journalism, what made me get into journalism was I'm an extremely curious person. I, I'm I'm like a learner to a fault. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm that person who will continue learning about something for so long that I cease to execute on it and it's no longer relevant. Um, and so what I loved about journalism is it gave me permission to be extremely curious about something for a short span of time and then to share that knowledge with other people. So I loved that I could in one day get assigned a story about the ballet, for example, and I'd have to spend that whole day talking to experts about ballet, learning about ballet, watching videos of ballet, and that my assignment was to distill everything I learned and share that with others so that they might care about it or, or love it as much as I did that whole process of learning about it. And obviously, you know, not every story is like that. Not everything is as fascinating um, <laughs> as you might hope, but that's really what I loved about it. And that it, it was this incredible power to, to educate and help others while also being given permission to sort of be a student of life. And so that's what made me get into journalism. And I think when I realized that, you know, 
I knew this love of, you know, the power that this kind of storytelling and reporting could, could have and the way you could help and impact and educate others. When I saw that there was a chance to apply that same sort of thing in the marketing and advertising world where we're generally, you know, marketers and advertisers are like, we're up there with sales, right? People don't have a generally an, a nice view of what we do. We're, we're the people who get in your way, who stop you from seeing the thing you want to see. We're distracting, we're interrupting. So if I could find a way to have that same set of values applied in that world, I actually thought it would, it could help people, you know, it could make the world a more, a more pleasant place to be if, if the focus of advertisers and marketers and sales was how can I add value to you? How can I share my knowledge with you instead of how can I just market to you? You know, how can I, how can I speak with you instead of at you? Uh, It felt like something that could, could really make a difference. And so for me, I think it really is, how do I, how do I collect this information and share it with as many people as possible so that it's not just sitting in my head or on my hard drive and, and it's actually able to make a difference. That's amazing. And I think it really uh, ties with what, what I picked up at the very beginning when I was looking through all of your different stuff, that it's that taking the values and, and kind of methodologies and processes and values of, of journalism and bringing that to marketing as opposed to the other way around. Yeah. It does help to give you know, the, the people of us who work in marketing uh, at least a, a slight breath of fresh air. Uh, I want to ask you two questions that kind of are going to help to set up where I want to take this next. Um, but I want to know about how you use technology, just kind of where you would generally put yourself. So if you could rate yourself on a scale of like one to 10 in technology usage with one being like, you barely know how to turn on your computer. And <laughs> we were just talking about your new computer, but, uh, and then 10 being like, you know, you're, you're basically like in the matrix, like where would you put yourself? <laughs> I think I'm probably slightly above average, um, you know, work, working as a, as a solopreneur, working as an entrepreneur, and especially one who travels, I have had to learn to embrace everything from, you know, the cloud, different productivity tools. I'm extremely mobile. You know, I could survive on my phone without my laptop. And I, and I, as we were just talking about, I had to get a new computer and I did exactly that for a few days. Um, I've figured out ways to automate things and uh, I actually feel really lucky. I took two different classes in college uh, on web design and, and uh, coding. And so it was very basic stuff. I couldn't, I couldn't do very much now, especially at the pace at which those things evolve and change. But it has given me a really good understanding of, you know, the technical way that the internet works, technical way that websites work and design works. And I think that that gives me maybe a better understanding than most as to how feasible certain things are when we're talking about building something or creating something. So you'd put yourself a little bit above the middle grounds, so like a yeah, six. Yeah, maybe I'm like a six. You okay, know? that's good. Uh, and and are you somebody who adopts new technology nowadays very quickly, or do you kind oh, yeah. of so you're like at the forefront? Oh yeah, like uh, you know, I I'm not ashamed to say I had to run out and grab the AirPods as soon as they came out. You know, I've got like a whole drawer full of sad adapters and and accessories that I've tried out because I thought they might meaningfully change my business. Uh, it doesn't always work out that way, but you know. Yeah, I think the AirPods are one of the greatest things ever invented since the original iPhone. So I am 100% with you. I love um, the AirPods. So the reason I wanted to ask you that is that um, it, as we talked about and, and as the listeners know, this show is about how the impact of technology and people can change the direction of our lives and our careers. And it, it affects all human beings. And I sense your value system of, of you know bringing the skills that you've um, that you've developed and that you value into the world for people and using that curiosity and letting that drive you and sharing that knowledge with others. So I get that part. What I'd like to know from you is 
Where did that come from? Who's who inspired you with this sort of a value system of even like, was there somebody that inspired you to get into journalism? Was there somebody who was a storyteller that you admired? Um, was it, you know, somebody that you were friends with that said something that just triggered in you a curiosity? Talk to me about how you became you and with this passion for bringing the, um, the, the journalistic, you know, style into marketing arriving here. It's a, a really good question. So many different people come to mind. Um, I, I think I've been really lucky. Am I allowed to, to give a few who I think collectively made a difference? Yeah, I think you could. I'd like you to start with one because I find the discipline of like narrow it down to who's that person that just totally shifted the direction of your life. And then from there, you can kind of add on the additional influences. But I'm curious if I had to, if you had to give me one person, who's that one person that just, you would not be the same you without this person. Oh yeah. I think, you know, if I look back in, in early days of schooling, I had countless teachers who in some way sort of pushed me in the right direction or, or encouraged me. Um, but very specifically, I remember I had a professor in college uh, named Tim Kenny and I had, um, I had taken, truthfully, I started out as an English major. You know, I thought I loved the writing part of it and that was what I was exposed to. So I thought I'd be an English major and I'd read all the classics and, and that would be it. And um, I took an introduction to journalism class, like a history of the press sort of class um, as a general requirement. You know, I thought, well, that seems interesting. Um, and at the end of that class, I, I, I don't know if it was the way that I did my work or the questions that I asked or something, but at the end of that semester, uh, he called me up and he, uh, you know, at the end of class and he said, you're in the wrong major kid. Like you, you love this stuff. I can tell that you love this stuff. The media, you know, fascinates you. And I think that, you know, you need to march over to such and such hall and, and get yourself into a journalism major so you could take more of these types of classes. And, you know, it was really the first time I think that I became aware of journalism as a career option. You know, it was something that, I, you know, obviously I read the newspaper, I had experience, and I had even worked on my college, you know, my high school newspaper before coming to college, but I don't think it ever occurred to me that I could do that as a living. You know, I don't think it had ever, no one had ever sort of pushed me in that exact direction. I, w I was being told that I could write, um, but not that that I could do it in a, in a way that would deliver that writing to others, you know, for some greater purpose other than it sounds good. And so I think that he, I mean, definitely he, he absolutely lit that spark and, and he was right. I went over and I changed my major and I signed up for tons of journalism classes and I joined the school newspaper. I became the editor in chief of the college paper and it absolutely, you know, 100% shifted the trajectory of my life. I don't know where I would have ended up if I had studied English, but maybe I just, it just would have taken me longer to find the same path. I am. I am so happy about this story because this is that your answer is the exact reason I started this podcast. Hmm. I think it, the, the kind of the thing that's behind my whole every human is impacted by people and technology is that I don't think that we sufficiently give credit to the little interactions sometimes that make the most massive difference in people's lives. Yeah. I could have easily just said, I have that thought and never said it to you. And it oh, could yeah. take you potentially years to get to, to that decision of realization to go that the direction you're taking now, or you might've never done that. So I'm just, I always love to hear about those sort of things, especially when somebody has found themselves uh, in a place where they're doing something that they're passionate about, that they're really good about, really good at, and that somebody inspired that. So I am, I am so happy that you told that story exactly what you did. You couldn't have lined it up better for me. That was awesome. And I think, like I said, it was hard for me to pick because I can think of probably three or four other professors I had who in some way had a similar interaction, exactly as you said, said the right thing at the right time, you know, uh, 
a professor who who was the first journalism professor I had who said you you need to go write for the paper like you should just go over there and if I hadn't gone over there I wouldn't have you know I wouldn't have become a columnist I wouldn't have become an editor and that editor position taught me so many things you know and helped me get internships helped me get a job so you know it's it's so easy to find those points a, a pivot point where a seemingly small interaction really shifted the whole direction of your life. Uh, and I think, you know, to your point, it's a good reminder to to say those things when, when you have a chance to be that person for someone else. Yeah, 100%. And, and honestly, it, it may have been fairly easy for you to recall that. I don't, I don't believe that I even gave you any setup before you came on that I was going to ask you about something like that. So the fact that you could recall it that quickly oh, yeah. um, kind of <laughs> speaks to the fact that that person had a profound impact. A lot of the people that I talk to, though, kind of struggle to find someone with that level of like direct impact. So, you know, again, it it's it speaks to how important that moment must have been that you could recall it that quickly. What it was, too, and and truthfully, when you were just talking about impact in general, I was having trouble thinking of it. I was thinking of, well, I had, you know, teachers who convinced me to to take a certain class or, you know, I, you know, who just offered general encouragement, who gave me a pep talk when I needed it, things like that. But when you said the the point about changing the direction of your life, I was like, well, that I mean, that's the one because that was very much a you know, my, that next semester, I was on a completely different course of study, uh, that has shaped my entire career. And, and at that point, my entire life, you know, it's the reason I, I moved to New York was to pursue that job that was, you know, journalism related. And that's where I've met my best friends. It's where I met my now husband, you know, you can trace back so many important things to a little decision like that. So, I'm curious about the other side of this then, which is the technology side. So I graduated undergraduate in uh, 2003 and I was in film school and uh, doing photography during the kind of transition from digital to analog. And there were so many technology changes that happened at that time. And it was a a massive shift for me in what kind of career path I wanted to go because film was very difficult at that point because of the technology limitations, et cetera. But it was when I came out of my MBA where social media was hitting its stride. And that really changed the direction of my life by allowing me to meet incredible people, leverage my conversation skills to come onto a podcast, like all these different things. I'm curious because journalism existed so much longer before there was ever such a thing as social media and even before there was such a thing as digital video or photography. So there's this long history of journalism and its impact on the world and then uh, increasingly its impact in media. I'm curious about throughout the course of your career, how technology has made an impact on how you've chosen to pursue the, the world of journalism and uh, take it into marketing or anything like that. So what's a, what's the technology shift that happened for you that changed the course of your life outside of obviously just the internet? Yeah, I mean, I think that the one that comes to mind immediately is just sort of the digitization of media. And I know that that's, it's such a broad, big thing, but I remember in college, I took a full three credit course on print layout and design of newspapers. Like that was what they thought was going to be super key for me when I was graduating, that I would know how to move the right levers and make a print newspaper look good, you know? And it was, I mean, this, this wasn't that long ago. It just took a long time for us to catch up and realize what this new environment was going to be for us. You know, I, I think I remember being required at one point, you know, when I, when I went back to school, I, I, I went back and got my, uh, my master's to learn more of those digital skills that I felt like I just didn't have and being required at that point to use a digital camera for the first time to, you know, set up a Twitter account, set up an Instagram account. You know, they were really kind of pushing us full force into you've got to use all these tools, uh, for journalistic purposes. And I think it really changed the way I thought about sort of the, 
democratization of information that there's no longer gatekeepers and if you have a message you now have a platform to deliver that message and I think to me that is sort of what gave me the inspiration to, to ultimately go out and start my own business. You know, I, I was very blessed to work at such wonderful companies with such great reputations and to be given so much responsibility, um, you know, truthfully, when I was pretty young uh, to, to shape these departments and these, these lines of business that we created. But the opportunity to take that message and be able to impact even more people, you know, understanding that I could do that because I could set up my own website, because I could blog, because I could go on a podcast or, you know, share my message in all these different ways, that couldn't have happened 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And so I think that is as broad as it may be, that just that ability to to create your own platform and take, take control of your own message is, I mean, that's that's the basis for, for everything that I've done. So you're an idealistic person based on everything that we've talked about <laughs> and the way, you, and I, and I really, I appreciate that because there's just so much pessimism and, and like just cruddiness out in the world that it, it's nice to hear about someone who's excited about what they do and excited about the opportunities. Like when I think about social, I still hold out hope that there's like this, this we'll all come back to our humanity from it. But I'm curious when we look at the other side of that as a journalist, as somebody who talks about um, and, and has been inf- affected by the ability for anyone to publish, what about yeah. the other side of that? Which is that, sure, now you've got people like you who are, you put a lot of time and energy and thought and, um, and, and responsibility on yourself about how to go about doing this. And then any idiot with an internet connection <laughs> can also start a blog and build up a following and they don't have to check their sources and they don't. So there's yeah. this whole world out there and then there's the spread of misinformation. So oh, on yeah. the other side of things, you know, you're in this world. What is your take on what's currently happening right now with all of this spread of misinformation, with all of this, anybody has a voice and anybody can build an audience regardless of the accuracy or validity of what they do. Oh yeah. Or do you think we're on the right path? Are we going to course correct or, or is it not as bad as I think it is just like native advertising? <laughs> Bill what do you see? Uh, you know, I'm not great when it comes to predictions. I can't say I'm never really right when I try to predict where we go. So I try as a rule to to avoid that. Well, instead um, of a prediction, just, <laughs> what about your feeling about it? You know, just well, if you, it breaks my heart, it, yeah. it breaks my heart um, to see the, the weaponization of the term fake news, to see it used, uh, especially when it's used by people in the media, that breaks my heart. We're, we're sort of empowering this amorphous term that could be our own downfall. We're telling people broadly that, you know, intentionally malicious propaganda is somehow in the same category or on the same scale as I misspelled that person's name and had to issue a correction. You know, we're sort of broadly putting every sort of bad possible thing in our industry, malicious or otherwise, into this category and allowing other people to malign us with that. So I don't like to give power to those kinds of terms like fake news. I I don't use it as a rule, except in this exact context to talk about why I don't like it as a term. Um, You know, it, it breaks my heart every time I see a journalist, you know, who ends up admitting that they falsified something or made up a source. It gives us all a bad name. Um, and I think, I think the reason it's so, so important is that journalism has, like I said, such power. You know, when a, when a chef lies about their ingredients, you know, we're talking about someone maybe has an allergy, right? Uh, we're talking about, you know, it maybe didn't taste as good as we thought it would, or they charged us more than they should. When we're talking about you know, essentially the fourth estate that keeps our government honest, that creates an informed people. Uh, 
the stakes are really high. And so, you know, I do take it personally, even though I, I don't call myself a journalist anymore. I don't think it's fair to, for me to do that as someone who works so clearly in the realm of business, um, to, to sort of equate myself with people who are doing that kind of work. Um, but, you know, as a as sort of a champion for journalism, as someone who wants to support the business model that keeps journalism going in the ways that, that I do my work, uh, it, it breaks my heart when I see people, you know, kind of doing anything that would kind of work against that. It's, it's always upsetting for me. Um, I think the one thing I do try to remind myself, and it's it's funny that you say I'm an idealist. I, I'm glad to hear that at least it's coming across that way. I, I do feel pessimistic oftentimes when I'm sort of consuming all the, the news of the world and, and industry news. But um, the one thing I try to remind myself is that every industry, every product, every profession has good and bad. You know, there are, there are dishonest cab drivers and there are dishonest landlords and there are dishonest, you know, burger chefs the same way that there are bad journalists. We just happen to be a little bit more in the public eye. And so, you know, I try to remind myself that it's not necessarily that we're worse. We're just maybe a little more under the microscope than many other, you know, many other professions. And, and we have more, um, you know, more of a, more of a public punching bag, so to speak, because of that. Yeah, no, I totally get that. Let me ask you this. People listening uh, hopefully have gotten a lot out of just the, the career that you've built for yourself, the path you took to get there, the inspiration from an early uh, part of your career to, to get to where you are. Um, you, you have a lot of accomplishments under your belt in terms of your career history, the speaking engagements that you do, the brands that you've worked with, but there's got to be something in your career that you wish you could go back and do differently or maybe a big lesson that you wished you learned earlier in your career that, that could have accelerated, maybe something that you're like, oh, damn it, if I had only known that five years ago or something. So what is your piece of advice that you could go, if you could go back and give yourself some advice, what would that big lesson be? I think I undervalued myself for a long time. I think it's just as simple as that. And I think it's, it's something that maybe was a factor of, of being young and having imposter syndrome. Uh, maybe it's a factor of, of being a woman and trying to be agreeable and, and not so aggressive in a corporate environment. Um, but I think I routinely discover that I was being underpaid comparatively to others who had my role or, you know, that I wasn't asking for the rates that I should have been asking for either as a consultant, as a writer, uh, as a speaker, uh, finding out that, you know, things I was told about available budgets weren't true. Um, and in those times, I just realized that, you know, if I wish that I had had stood a little bit stronger in my own value to be able to stand up for that. And, and not because it's all about making money, but it, a little bit's about, you know, feeling good about yourself and, and feeling like others value you the way that you should be valued. Um, so I wish I had learned that a lot sooner. And I hope everybody who's listening learns that as well. Value yourself. You bring to the table what you bring to the table. So the third grader, the fourth grader looks like an expert. So do you and love yourself. That's my advice. Darn it. Uh, I want to ask you a couple <laughs> rapid fire questions. Uh, yeah. I could, I could literally talk to you for hours and hours. You're an <laughs> interesting person. Um, so I would love to have you back on another time. Uh, yes, let's do it. To talk more stuff. But um, I want to make sure that we're being sensitive to both of our time. So I want to take you through the shareables, which are our rapid fire questions where you share things that you think people should know about. And I have uh, a bunch of questions lined up for you. So rapid right. fire, here we go. What's one book every person should read? It could be any kind of book. I think everyone should read the book called Everybody Writes by Anne Handley. Awesome. Love Anne. Okay. What's your favorite podcast? 
Ooh, oh man. I, I listen to so many podcasts. I kind of binge through different ones at the at this current moment. I've been really into 99% invisible. Love Roman Mars voice. It's yes. So <laughs> soothing. Okay. What's the one application, mobile or desktop or web, that everyone should go and download or use? I don't know if everyone should go and download or use it, but I'm extremely into this app called Streaks. I just learned about it recently. You can define habits that you want to continue to do, and it will sort of remind you and help you keep track of, you know, keeping on a streak. Very cool. What is the most important skill of the future? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I'm going to go with empathy. It's our most popular answer. Really? Yeah. I, 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 thought, I, was, I thought it was being really deep and special. No, I mean, you are. <laughs> You are, but you're not being necessarily unique. You're Got it. You are special, and it is just deep. In a, in a, my in answer, a, but it's yeah. it, because I think it's true. I think as we move more and more into technology and disconnected in in you know in real time in real space yeah. together, I think we lose a lot of that empathy and hide behind our keyboards. And I think that's why so many people give that as an answer. And I think particularly in a global world, I mean, you're going to be connecting with people who you have less in common with than ever before. So being able to put yourself in their shoes and understand their perspective is going to be key. Absolutely. 100%. All right. If you could have any one superpower, what would it be? And I'll quickly clarify. It could be one superpower or you could have one superhero's set of powers. Mm, got it. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go with mind reading. Okay. That's an interesting one. P.S. I love these answers because I'm a huge comic book geek and I... <laughs> I am like breaking you down right now, understanding you better and better. Okay. The final question is the big one. So you can take a second to think about it, even though it's a rapid fire, but I think it's the most important one. What's one thing that everybody listening to this episode should go and do today? The today part's the important part. It means yes. it's not something to think about. Go do it today. Go and tell someone that you appreciate, like someone who's made a difference in your life, who's helped you, who's supported you, who's done something. Give them the thank you that they need. And it doesn't have to be a big deal. It could be a text message, an email, a phone call, like send them flowers. It could be someone you've not interacted with in a long time. Those kinds of messages can be so important for people uh, when you least expect it. So go, go express gratitude to someone who's, who's added value to your life. I'll be honest with you. I have never done this before. This is going to be the first episode where I say this, but I asked this question. I've now asked like 50 people that question. And I don't think I've ever necessarily gone and done that thing today. But I think yours is going to be the first one where I'm going to start a trend for myself where I'm going to take that advice and I'm actually going to do that today. I'm going to go and thank somebody that has meant a lot to me and who has done something really uh, special for me. So uh, you've started a new trend on shareable. So I think. Excellent. Um, all right. Where can people go and be social with you, learn more about you, hire you, pay you gobs and gobs of money for your. <laughs> well, if you want to learn more about what we do at Story Fuel, how we help brands and marketers learn to tell better stories, you can find more about us at storyfuel.co. So that's .co. Um, you can find me across social media as either M Diesel or Mel Diesel, depending on how early I got to that platform and claimed my name. Um, but as you said earlier when we started, I'm fairly SEO optimized. So if you search for Melanie Diesel, D-E-Z-I-E-L, you will find me. You will find her everywhere. Um, you have been such a phenomenal guest. I have had such a run lately of incredible people on this show. Uh, you were so easy to talk to, even though we've never met before. I feel like we're BFFs. Um, I love your value system. I love the energy and the passion you bring. Uh, this episode was like a tremendous amount of fun for me. And if I had to sum it up in one word, I'd, I'd probably say it's shareable. 
Wait, the show's not over yet. I have some important announcements. If you made it this far, you're clearly a dedicated fan or you're in the middle of vacuuming and just haven't hit stop on your podcasting app. Whatever the case, we want to thank you. We're not just music to your ears, we're music to your inbox. If you subscribe to our email list at sharablepodcast.com slash subscribe, not only will you get access to our private Facebook group, you'll also get all of our blog posts, newsletters, special announcements, and more. You won't find any of that in your podcast feed. You can follow the show at shareable underscore pod on Twitter and just shareable podcast on everything else. You can find Jeff online at jeffgibber.com and you can connect with me on Twitter at Caroline Sohn because I don't have a website yet. So go ahead, call us, leave a message, subscribe to our list, leave a rating, review us on iTunes, tell a friend, tell your mom. If she's like my mom, she'll love it. And now for the thank you portion to all the folks that make this podcast possible. Shout out to DJ Quads for the use of our theme song, Always, and Ahamitsu for the use of our outro song, Adventures. And a big thank you to Ray Bueno for all of that sexy production value. 